0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe.
1: I suggest we use it. The button question stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, cause I can't. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and World Vo- Worldview radio program where we try to talk as clearly as we can. Hi, I'm Keith Kendricks, and with me is Kirk Hastings. Hello there. Kirk, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you here. Thank you. You are a regular co-host of ours. Dr. Mike Arrakis is not able to make it here today. He is Actually has another life. I don't understand it, you know? I thought he was only about evidence for faith. Does he take his clothes off in a phone booth and fly around or what? <laughs> yeah, he is a super guy, that's true. <laughs> so um, we missed last week. We didn't get to wish everybody a Merry Christmas because of the weather. We were had to run a repeat. but The station was snowed in, I understand. Nobody could even get in here. I'm telling you. Well, Josh probably, our sound engineer Josh, I'm sure, probably made it in at least to make sure that everything was running. Barely got out. And he says he barely got out in time. <laughs> so almost got snowed in here. We would, have had to, we would have found him days later. Well, Merry Christmas to everybody and a Happy New Year. It's uh, been a very interesting year for me, I know. God has been very good to me. Been quite interesting for me, too. I'm looking forward to an, a
0: wonderful new year. My first new year, my first year on this program, this past year.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. So it's been that's been exciting. I don't
0: know what the date of the first show was, so I don't know what my anniversary is. A little
1: but. after, yeah, a little. We we've been around a little more than two years. So and we continue to grow. The, mm-hmm. the website is uh, getting more and more downloads. So that's, that's great. exciting. I brought the numbers. In fact, since I try to look at them at least once a month, we had from the show two weeks ago. We had almost 7,000 downloads. Wow. So that is really good. We're just going up exponentially. A lot of it seems to be coming from a blog that picked us up. Uh, it's called a soldier for Jesus blogspot.com. It had a link directly to that particular podcast. So that podcast got a lot of attention. So then after that, the second most popular is still Fulfilled Prophecy. That's now up to 3,900 downloads. Superstition, the one that you and I did. Kirk, you remember it was from your book, Superstition, Philosophy and Religion? Mm-hmm. Do you remember that show? That yep. one is number three with just over 3,500 downloads. And then the debate that we had with the atheists recently is just a little over 3,000. And then fast approaching it is that one we did back in October on the science of aging. So, So those are the most popular podcasts. Those are available if you're New to the show, you can go to evidenceforfaith.com, where we have a podcast page, and you can go back for the past two years. There's about 110 or 120 shows on there, and that's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Well, you're listening to us on WIBG Ocean City, exclusively on Life Radio. Um, we've got the website, but we also have a Facebook page. So if you're interested in joining the fan page on Facebook, it's Evidence for Faith. And I guess I have to mention we are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, New Jersey, since they help us out. So, Kirk, you did you go see any movies? Did you take the kids for Christmas anywhere, or...? Believe it or not, no, he
0: didn't uh, go out all that much. All right. Well, I was. It was just all I could do to get all the presents wrapped in
1: time and get them under the tree. <laughs> okay. The, one of the Christmas releases was the Dawn Treader, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. By, I definitely want to see that. Yeah, that was very good. It was very well done. The so, commercials for it looked great. Yeah, yeah, exciting. And of course, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. So this one is the third movie from the Chronicles of Narnia series. And. They did a good job. They, You know, I recommend, of course, that you read the book. But mm-hmm. if, uh, in, after you read the book, then go see the movie. Uh, but I think it was a very good representation of the movie. The, the really interesting character is the kid named Eustace. And there's a, a book called The Chronicles of Narnia and Philosophy, edited by Gregory Basham and Jerry Walls and they say in there that Eustace is Lewis's portrayal of the thoroughly modern secularist. He's someone who views the world as a storehouse of physical stuff which science can use for human progress but who rejects or ignores the ideas of spiritual reality and objective moral values. So that's the Eustace kid and then he gets turned into a dragon <laughs> and finds out that it's, you know, it's time to change his character. So he realizes that there's uh, more important things than indulging in one's physical desires, that human relationships and putting one's natural abilities to use in the greater cause is a good idea. So he Mm -hmm. becomes a reformed Eustace after he gets restored back to his human shape. So it's a great, great movie.
0: C.S. Lewis has always been one of my favorite authors.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I got saved by reading his argument for the... Existence of God, the moral argument. That's in the book *Mere Christianity*.
0: That's one of the first books I read after I became a Christian. Okay. Yep. Still and, one of my favorites.
1: And there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that have been uh, saved through that book. Mm-hmm. So, so it's an excellent book. Another book to recommend: *Mere Christianity* by C.S. Lewis. Uh, let's see. I guess it's time to look at some emails. We're getting barraged with emails. In fact, so I know uh, listeners who have sent emails. If you're waiting for a reply, please be patient. I've, I've got, in fact, some second emails back. Well, you're not answering me. But unfortunately, it's a little tough. There's a, We're really getting swamped with emails. Some of them, please don't do this, but somebody wrote me a four-page email with long arguments for atheism. You know, <laughs> So it's like, okay, this is really good. I'm happy that you're so excited about your faith in atheism. But... You know, I've been through all the arguments. This is what the whole show is about. We do the arguments for and against.
0: Listen to the show every week and you'll hear our answers. Exactly.
1: There you go. So send, if you're going to send something, just, you know, keep it short. And I'm happy to answer questions and that kind of thing. Sounds like it's time to hire a secretary. Well, actually, you know, I may may have to pawn some off on you. Especially, uh, you you could tackle that four-pager. This one, unfortunately, you know, (laughs) see, a lot of this, he seemed to be... just judging by the way it was written, seemed to be a fairly young young person. You know, sometimes they get a few good ideas, but then they mix it up with a lot of, you know, not very logical issues, and it all becomes a hodgepodge. And then to try to dissect it for the person, to show them where they've gone wrong in their thinking, for every paragraph... You could write a
0: whole novel in response, uh, trying yeah, to answer something. exactly. Some
1: You'd have to do a page almost for every paragraph, just to step-by-step step right. show where they've gone wrong... So like I said, so.
0: the best solution is to listen to the show every week, and there you eventually you'll get your questions answered.
1: There you go. And we may tackle that. I'll, I'll pull that one up and, and go over it a little more thoroughly. We may tackle that one on a paragraph-by-paragraph uh, paragraph basis as we go along. But we did get an email from Ruth. I thought this was interesting. She was responding to something that was mentioned during the debate with the atheists from— What's that, three weeks ago now, I guess. And she says, I find it interesting that Joseph Smith was denounced as a prophet because all his prophecies did not come true. Now, and just as a parenthetical comment, that was mentioned by the atheists, their former um, Mormons. Mm-hmm. And continuing with the email, soon followed by a comment that prophecies made by prophets in the Bible came true hundreds of years later. Okay, so that was a comment by me, I think. I wonder how many people soon after the deaths of those uh, Bible prophets proclaimed them false because those prophecies did not come true within their lifetime. Um, Well, I'm sure that that probably did happen because many of the prophecies didn't come true until hundreds of years later. So I'm sure Mm -hmm. that there were people that claimed that that they were false prophets, therefore. So, but when you're saying that it's something that's going to happen in the future... And yet, it hasn't happened yet. Unless you have some kind of chronological marker that you could use to say, okay, well, now this—it's impossible for this prophecy to be fulfilled now because X, Y, and Z has happened. Uh, other than that, I don't know how you can actually argue that way.
0: I do know also that uh, I've read—you a, a, know—a number of histories on Joseph Smith, and I know that there he had a number of prophecies where he specifically said. This will come true in my lifetime.
1: Oh, okay. All right. So and those you know, I we was can definitely
0: a... point to and say they did not
1: happen during his lifetime. Well see, that is why we have you on the show, because I was completely unaware that Joseph Smith had made any prophecies. So Yeah, quite a few
0: actually. And some of them did come true, which, you know, the laws of average they probably right. would. But there was one specific one. I remember I don't remember the exact name of the location, but he said that there was going to be a Mormon church built in a certain location before he died and it was never built and to this day has never been built in that location. So okay, so I think that, it's safe to say that prophecy did not come true.
1: All right. so that's uh, that's our email from Ruth, whom I'm assuming is a Mormon, possibly. All right. Let's see. You've got an email. I've got one more that I thought we could mention. This is from Cowboy Bob. Uh, Shout out to Cowboy Bob because I think he might be related to that blog that uh, got us all those hits. But he says, I listen to your podcast. He says, hi, Keith and Mike. Uh, I listen to your podcast and they help get me through mindless data processing because you give me some intellectual stimulation. When you discussed the issues of slavery recently, I wanted to write and remind you of a couple of other things with that. Now, he's referring to a couple shows back where we read a a letter from an atheist who complained that the Bible seemed to authenticate the uh, slavery, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it was a moral argument against the Bible. So Mike and I went through a couple of details, you know, that it really doesn't say, you know, slavery is a good thing, but it does allow for slavery under certain circumstances. It
0: recognized its reality in society
1: at the time. In that particular time. time, But didn't approve of it. Right. That's right. So he continues to give us—so then the email from Cowboy Bob gives us some more uh, ammunition to use for that. He says, first, slavery was regulated— Biblical slavery was quite unlike Muslim or any other slavery and much more humane. Also, it was an act of mercy. The Israelites waged war, conquered, and there were women and children left. If they were left to fend for themselves, they would probably starve or be murdered by other enemies. Uh, Just thought I would add these points. Keep up the good work, and thanks for reading. Sincerely, Cowboy Bob. So shout out to Cowboy Bob. So a couple more (laughs) concepts, but... You know, one of the big things for me is the fact that they didn't have prisons in those days. You know, so what are you going to do with criminals or uh, debtors or you know things? You know, you make them work it off. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so usually what
0: happened to the. Uh, that way, you don't have to kill them. To the losers in a war, too. The uh, right captives, they became slaves. Right. Well, I I got an interesting email. I got my first email this Ooh, past week, about the radio related show. to the show. Yeah. yeah from a young man named Troy Hillman. Hello, Troy, out there, if you're listening. He says, uh, I have been a listener of Evidence for Faith for quite some time now, and I've heard you on the podcast. And uh, he says that he finds our show very interesting. He says he's a 17-year-old senior in high school in western New York. He also says he's an avid student of apologetics, and he has his own Facebook website called The Truth where he uh, posts articles and evidence about uh, the Christian faith, much like what we do on this program. Uh, I looked at it. It's very good. So check out The Truth under um, Facebook. And he says here, I've only been uh, writing this uh, website since May 8th, but he says, I've attracted attention from all over the globe with the daily visiting rate increasing each day. So that's great. great. Mm -hmm. And... uh, he just uh, writes in to say that he wanted to thank us for the interesting programs that we have and the things he's learned from it, and it was very nice to get his email.
1: Cool. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and Kirk Hastings. Uh, let's see. I wonder if we should read. We did get some reviews on iTunes. Uh, maybe we can spend a little bit of time. We'll have to watch the clock because we got a stack of stuff. There's a whole bunch to talk about. But maybe I can do some of that. Let's see here what we've got. Uh, There's a bunch of reviews, some from atheists. This one was from an atheist I thought was pretty interesting. Let me see if I can magnify that a little bit. I heard you guys on irreligiosophy, so needless to say, even though I'm about to say it, I am an atheist. However, I found you guys to be humble and engaging. You showed professional restraint and allowed irreligiosophy, Charlie and Leighton, to express their views without heated responses. Not an easy thing to do for a subject so contentious. While I am currently at odds with your beliefs, I would recommend this podcast because it is well presented and the hosts are provocative. Wow, that's very nice. By Jerembi number five. Uh, let's see. Okay, well, in the interest That's of time— That's one of the nicest
0: criticisms I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, no, let me give you a bad criticism then, because I thought this one was pretty funny. I'm sure I, there's plenty of those, too. <laughs> yeah, uh, gosh, here it is. Let's see. Okay, so we got a one star from Luke. I won't say his last name. These guys are so ignorant. I can refute every single argument they came up with for the existence of God, and I'm 16. It's so easy, it's hilarious. That was it. So, so there are some sixteen-year-olds and who. When I
0: was sixteen, I thought I had all the answers too. Yep. Wait a few years, son. Yeah, there you go. Wait
1: till you have a sixteen-year-old. You'll see what we mean. All right. Okay. So that's uh, and a bunch of other ones, some good and some bad. So that's uh, so that's good. That comes from the uh, iTunes uh, podcast site. All right, let's do some quotes. Well, I try to do a quote of the day, but since we've been gone for two weeks, I've got two quotes, and maybe more later. (laughs) This one is from historian Paul Mayer, and it's about historicity of Jesus, since that was the fill-in show that we did last week, and I happen to be reading one of his books. Here's the quote. Anybody who tries to use the argument that Jesus of Nazareth never existed as a verifiable Historical figure is simply flaunting his or her ignorance. There is no serious question in the mind of any serious scholar anywhere in the world that there certainly was a historical personality named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you can argue if he was the Son of God or not, arguing about the supernatural aspects of his life, but in terms of the historical character of Jesus, all the evidence is in favor. And Paul Mayer. Oh, I didn't write down his stats. He is a professor of medieval, not medieval, uh, ancient history, I believe, Okay. at Wisconsin. Oh, boy, I'm probably messing that up. But I believe it's Wisconsin University. Uh, and he is the author of several books. Uh, one of them I'm reading now called Pontius Pilate, and it's very well written because, you know, Every once in a while, a professor decides that he's going to write a novel, and he should stick to being a professor. Uh-huh. But this is actually well-written. It's a As very... a writer, they're good professors, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, But I recommended Pontius Pilate because he doesn't change any of the historical facts in order to make the narrative go. Mm-hmm. He all, the only thing he adds to it is some of the dialogue that of course didn't get written down. Right. But even we don't the, have
0: recordings from them. <laughs> well,
1: we don't have a lot, but we actually even do have some uh, written down dialogue, and he uses that in the book. So, oh, wow. and every name that's mentioned is the known name of a real person. Mm-hmm. So if it's a uh, fake person, that person doesn't have a name. Uh, so it's really good, very uh, very intriguing. All the political meanderings that were going on at the time of Jesus and how King Agrippa got Caligula to become the uh, next emperor. Very interesting. Hmm. So, lots Probably
0: of not all that different from politics today when you look at it. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, more bloodthirsty, though. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, lots of killing. And, and what was funny was, you know, the We don't deal in
0: physical killing today. We deal in character assassination exactly
1: that's how we do it that's how we do it but yeah they were the populace was uh oh you're wonderful you're terrific we think you're the greatest emperor that ever lived and then somebody knifes him in the back because he's been brutalizing the population Uh then the population says oh we have to have freedom we have to have freedom and then some guy stands up and says guess what i'm the new emperor and they say oh we love you we love you you're the greatest emperor ever you know, and then they, he starts killing them. You know? uh-huh. So it's everybody was so afraid that they were going to get killed that just whoever showed any sign of any power, right? Immediately they would chase after him and oh, sure. you're the you're the yeah. yeah So
0: Some things never change.
1: Apparently not. All right, the next quote is from C.S. Lewis, *Speak of the Devil*. From
0: metaphorically his, speaking. <laughs>
1: that's right. Yep, since we were just talking about it Very him, metaphorically. And this is about naturalism, since we also have been talking about naturalism today. If all that exists is nature, the great mindless interlocking event, if our own deepest convictions are merely the byproducts of an irrational process, then clearly there is not the slightest ground for supposing that our sense of fitness and our consequent faith in uniformity Tell us anything about a reality external to ourselves. Our convictions are simply a fact about us, like the color of our hair. hmm So he's saying that, uh, you know, if I say one thought follows from another thought, if my brain comes from evolution, it's just the same as if I said, I like ice cream. Mm-hmm. That's I'm not saying anything about the real world. I'm only saying something about me. Right. So, uh, and then it continues, if naturalism is true, we have no reason to trust our conviction that nature is uniform. So that Yes, from... it
0: seems like if you take naturalism logically, the best you would be able to say is, I don't know if there's a God or not. You wouldn't be able to say, like the atheist says, there is no God, because... You can't know that. You'd have no way of knowing that for sure.
1: Right. And some atheists are careful to try to make that distinction right. between, I guess let's define it as strong atheism, where I'm saying, I, I know there's no God, or I think it's probable that there's no God. Or I'm pretty
0: and, sure there isn't a God.
1: Right. And a weaker atheism, which just says, I'm not sure, I don't have enough evidence, and I don't like your evidence, I guess. Right. So so not, not every... Atheist makes the mistake of
0: that's one of the things I like about C.S. Lewis, though, is he was a skeptic for years and basically was an atheist until someone challenged him to really look at the evidence objectively. And when he did that, he came out the other end and he's he very in in his own words, he said, I very reluctantly accepted it. I right. didn't want to, but he realized that the evidence is too strong here. I'd be a total hypocrite if I didn't accept it. That's right. So yeah. he he knows in his writings defending Christianity, he knows what it's like to be a skeptic because he was there himself.
1: And you were a former skeptic yourself, yes. right?
0: Yes. Not an active skeptic. I was more like, um, didn't pay much attention to religion in general. Okay. But, you know, I, I would be categorized today probably as an agnostic. You know, I believed, okay, there's probably something out there somewhere, but I'll never know what it is. There's no way to find out.
1: Yeah, and that's—right, exactly. So that's a kind of a strong agnosticism. Not only do you not know, but you can't know. Right. There's so many many conflicting
0: arguments. How am I ever going to be able to separate the right one out if there is a right one? Right.
1: Yeah, well, I I was maybe a little stronger than that. I felt that not only did I not know, but even the people who said they didn't know were wrong and just didn't realize that they were wrong, that they also did not know and could not know. Mm -hmm. So that's a strong strong agnosticism versus weak agnosticism. Mm -hmm. All right, let's see. Let's look at a couple of the things from the stack of stuff, and maybe then we can get into a little bit more of some of the debate analysis. We just missed a couple of items off of it, but... This came across my desk on the uh, from the thinkchristianly.org blog. I love that blog. I talk about it all the time, and I usually pull an item from their week weekly stuff stack of stuff and bring it into my stack of stuff.
0: That's thinkchristianly.org.
1: Yeah, it's a great, and I I got to meet the guy who does it. He was down at the Philosophical Society meeting, so that was good. It was nice meeting him. Well, here's this item on what are the lost Gospels, and were they left out of the Bible? Hmm. So it's referring to a group of documents that were discovered in 1945, 52 papyri that were discovered in Nag Hammadi in Lower Egypt, and a lot of them had the title Gospel in the title. Like the Gospel of Thomas? Exactly. That's a famous one. Yes, that's right. That's one of the more famous ones, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas. Now, right right off the bat, before we get into this too much, that is actually one of the clues that these are later writings, because it has the word gospel in the name of it. Right. Because the gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not have... They're not called the Gospel Correct. Of now, in an English translation, you might see somebody like a King James or something might say the Gospel of Matthew, but the actual manuscripts do not say the Gospel. Don't have that title. No, they just say, they say, by Matthew. Right. Or by John. They just consider them biographies of Jesus. That's right. The name Gospel didn't come until later. Right. So when you see these things called... Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Thomas, you know that they were written later, after the name had been developed. So, and, gee, why do you think they were named Gospel? Because they were kind of a me too, me too. Mm -hmm. I want to be included, I'm a Gospel. Right. So, and of course some of them really weren't, like the Gospel of Thomas is just a list of sayings, it's not even actually a biography of Jesus, it's just a list of sayings of Jesus. One of them, which I guess I'll mention now, is really interesting. Have you ever read the Gospel of Thomas? I've not actually read the whole thing. I've read pieces of it. Okay, well, here's one you might have read then. It says, quote, Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is from the Gospel of Thomas, which a, a lot of people prefer to the Gospels in the Bible.
0: Well, but the feminists love that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yep. Well, Pagels is one of the ones uh, who loves the uh, Gospel of Thomas and and apparently she doesn't have a problem with it. Ooh. So so what were these documents from Nag Hammadi, some of them were what are called New Testament Apocrypha, and the others were Gnostic writings. Okay, what's Apocrypha? That is a story that fills in gaps. So it's extra writing. It's, it actually means hidden things. So these are writings about things people didn't know, hidden things. So mm-hmm. typically they fill in gaps from a couple of periods of Jesus's life, first being his childhood, right? Not a lot of written about that. Right. and second uh, the three days between his death and resurrection. Things that
0: were not dealt with in the original four Gospels. Correct. These so, people tried to fill in the holes. Yeah, exactly. Would, Even if they didn't know, they would make it up.
1: Make it up. And, and a lot of it was made up just because of the idea of a fiction, you know, like a fictional novel. Right. You know, they would use real characters and they would simply, this was, what they did was create fiction for people to read. Right. And then later it was picked up and, you know, said, oh, gee, this is talking about Jesus. Should we add it to the Bible or not? <laughs> so... Uh, And then the second uh, category—oh, well, let me finish with some of the Apocrypha. Here's another example. Um, One of them, you know, talks about Jesus as a child, and apparently Jesus goes around killing a lot of other children. Uh, He—Jesus bumped uh, into—or a child bumped into Jesus, which aggravated him so much that he struck him dead. So that's uh, from the infancy gospel of Thomas. (laughs) Just an example. Those are the Apocrypha. Then there's the Gnostic writings. Now, Gnosticism was a form of religion at the time, and it predates Christianity. And it was basically a mystery religion where you would have secret ceremonies. You would pay money and join this cult-like group Mm -hmm. and they would reveal all their secrets to you. Exactly. They would reveal things. So they're very, in a way, there's a little bit of that in uh, Mormonism, a little bit of that secret knowledge in the temple knowledge that you get later. Right. But also Scientology today is a great example of Gnosticism. You pay money to us, and we will reveal secrets to you that help you in your life. Right. So Gnosticism isn't entirely dead, but
0: uh, people who are— I would be suspicious of any religion that says, put your money up first before we tell you anything. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you're just supporting the cause, you know? The good cause has got to go on, right?
0: But how do I know what the cause is? <laughs> how until, you'll find out until later. Until you tell me <laughs> after right. I pay my money, and then it's too late to get it back. <laughs> right, when you're too
1: in deep, yep. So let's do a comparison here between Gnosticism and Orthodox Christianity— just to give you an idea, because people think that, and some have made the claim, that Gnosticism was just another form of Christianity. and Like a
0: denomination?
1: Yeah, essentially like a denomination. And that it was only because of the majority rule, or however, better arguing or something, that the Christians of today kind of won out the argument and kind of right. suppressed the Gnostic um, right. other Christians. Right. And so their Gospels, the things that they wrote, didn't get included in the Bible. Well, uh, let's, you know, a quick comparison will show that that's not true. Orthodox Christianity claims there's only one God and creator. In Gnosticism, there are multiple creators. So not just one God, but multiple creators, and they were called demi urges. So these demi-urges created the earth, and Mm. you'll see why as we go along here. In Orthodox Christianity, the world, body, soul, and spirit are all good. In Gnosticism, the world and your body are evil. Only the spirit and soul are good. Mm. Okay? And and so this is why these demi-urges had to be there. So because God is good, but how could he create and earth when the earth is evil. So he had to use these kind of semi-gods, these demi-urges, to create the earth and people. (laughs) Orthodox Christianity believed that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. In Gnosticism, Jesus only appeared to be human. He was actually only a spirit being. So he never was a human being. He was a spirit, like a ghost, who simply appeared to be a person. Mm-hmm. That's Gnosticism.
0: Almost like a hallucination.
1: <laughs> right. So these people who are you know, claiming that they they prefer Gnosticism to Christianity, I don't think they really know what they're getting into.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. And, of course, this is used for the, they say that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead either, since he was never physical to begin with. Uh, so, they kind of deny the resurrection too yes, because of that.
1: Absolutely. Okay. In Orthodox Christianity, Jesus came to restore relationships broken by sin. In Gnosticism, ignorance, not sin, is the ultimate problem. So, that's where you get this knowledge thing. So, but ignorance is your problem. It's not sin, it's not that you're doing bad things and that has separated you from a holy God. It's that you're ignorant. And we have the knowledge, we have that secret knowledge that we can give you, Hmm. you know, just fork over the dough and we'll give it to you.
0: That sounds like a very modern philosophy. That's basically what secularism tells us today, is that I'm okay and you're okay, you're just ignorant about how okay you are, so if we enlighten you, you'll be fine.
1: That's right, that's right. And, well, you can, again, you can see why Gnosticism is is popular. And they
0: think education is the answer to everything. All we have to do is educate people and they'll do the right thing.
1: Uh, Yeah. And that was Plato's view too, that, you know, people were morally morally bad because they were ignorant. Right. So, you know, now obviously we really think education is a wonderful thing. Sure. Knowledge is a wonderful thing, but it's not necessarily going to make you a more moral person. No,
0: there were plenty of examples throughout history of tyrants who were well educated.
1: Exactly. Orthodox, finally the last comparison, Orthodox Christianity faith in Christ brings salvation which is available to all but in Gnosticism, special knowledge brings salvation and it's available to only a select few. (laughs) Okay, so that is the Lost Gospels. Let me see if there was anything else on that. Uh, No, just to mention that of course that shows that Uh, these Gnostic sayings were not lost to the Church. So they're not lost Gospels. The Church knew about them and thought they were ridiculous. Right. And so, of course—
0: They're not lost. They've been rejected for good reasons. Exactly right.
1: They were rejected for good reasons, precisely. Okay, so let's see. How are we doing for time? Well, we'll just keep plowing through the stack of stuff, and maybe we'll have to do debate analysis another week. All right, let's see. This is also from thinkchristianly.org, and it's on a related subject, that's why I thought we'd include it. And it's about, how do we know the Bible includes the right books? And that's something that we've talked about in past shows. Mm -hmm. So, were the books of the New Testament selected by Emperor Constantine for social and political reasons in the 4th century, a la the Da Vinci Code? What do you think? Sound, uh, sound short true? answer, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that makes a good story, but if you really look into how the Bible was put together, it doesn't hold water at all. That's right, that's it right. It sounds good, but it's not.
1: So this is a pretty, this was a long, thinkchristianly.org doesn't usually do big long posts, but this one's pretty long, so I'm not going to go through a whole lot of this. But I thought a couple of things were very interesting, and there's a bunch of Bible verses, too, that I think we'll not read just for the interest of time, but I'll mention them so that you can look them up later. And what he does is he talks about what New Testament scholar Daryl Bach points to as three kinds of texts that are contained in the New Testament writings that show us what the earliest Christians believed. Okay, so the idea is that the books of the Bible didn't get decided until the 4th century and Christians really believed something different earlier on. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the that's the claim. Right. The reality is that if you look at the text of the New Testament, you they reveal what the earliest Christians did believe. And a lot of these things were actually discovered by non-Christian New Testament scholars who recognized that these were quotations from earlier Doctrinal statements. So there's three categories. Some of them
0: very close to the lifetime of Jesus himself.
1: Yes, exactly. And
0: of course, the the quotes that you get that are closer in time to when Jesus lived are you can assume are probably the more accurate. That's
1: right. That's right. In fact, one of them you can it goes back to no more than five years after the resurrection.
0: Wow, that's so, really close.
1: And probably, probably less than two years. But here is. The categories are schooling, singing, and sacraments. Okay, so schooling. What we find are doctrinal summaries that Christians would memorize and read alongside the Old Testament texts when they would gather together for worship in house churches. And so these can be found in Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, and 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. And Mike and I did a very long show about that one, the 15 verses 1 through 5. So these were doctrinal statements that talked about the fact that Jesus Christ was God, rose from the dead, died for our sins. All those things, all those traditional foundational doctrines were actually there present early on and are quoted in the New Testament. So the New Testament was written very early, first century, and those are quotations of even prior schooling doctrinal statements that were used to train new believers.
0: Right. They were early creeds, in other words. That's exactly right, early creeds. Yes.
1: Uh, Then second, there was singing. They would sing their theology in hymns and show their devotion to the Lord Jesus. So these hymns are found in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And then finally, sacraments. These are baptisms and Lord's Supper were practiced on a regular basis and picture the basic elements of the salvation story as a core theology. So then the typical baptismal statements and, and Lord's Supper, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 26, and Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, that talk about baptism and Lord's Supper and give the doctrinal explanations of them, mm-hmm. for instance baptism, death, and resurrection. So all these things were early, early doctrines of the Church. Uh, That's what the evidence show. So let's see if there's anything more here. Those three criteria first for determining what goes in.
0: You're losing your voice there. (coughs) Um, Yeah, one of the things that I've heard. my understanding of the Constantine argument is the actual the historical actuality of that is that Constantine didn't decide what was going to be put into the Bible but he simply officially recognized what Christians had already accepted as the legitimate documents that they'd been using all along since Jesus had lived so he didn't really create the Bible or put it together himself he simply recognized what christians already believed in and already accepted as the legitimate texts
1: well and it wasn't even really him you know it was he called the meeting to order and that's about it
0: right but what he the, presided over the that's uh, right. legalities or whatever but that's that's my understanding of what was done in those uh, meetings and they they used
1: specific criteria to determine is this book that we've had for you know hundreds of years, should this be included?
0: Drying so, out there. So here they are. Okay. It says here, <coughs> with that in mind, how were the books chosen? There were three criteria used to decide which books were received as authoritative or as canon. First, was a book written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle, which is That's a good test. In other words, people that were either close friends or associates of Jesus when he lived or were eyewitnesses of what he did and what he said. Exactly. Uh, Mark was accepted because he was an associate of Peter, and Luke was accepted because of his relationship to the Apostle Paul. Or to put it another way, if the book was not from the first century, it was not Scripture because it couldn't be traced back to the Apostles who were originally taught and commissioned by Jesus.
1: Right. So another sort of obvious criteria for inclusion into the Bible.
0: Okay, secondly, it says here, Did does the book conform to the teachings, theology of other books known by the apostles? Uh, of course, and then s- this is what you just talked about, the schooling and the singing and the sacraments that they were using from very early on. These were examples of the teachings and the theology that
1: was taught by the apostles that were carried on in this way. Right. So the example would be Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. You know, should that be included? We're not quite sure who wrote it. Right. But doctrinally, it fit exactly with what the previous authors had been writing.
0: Right. Okay. And finally, uh, the third test was, was the book accepted early on in the life of the church by the majority of churches across the region? It was important that a book wasn't just accepted in one location, but that lots of Christians in different cities and regions accepted it. So if it passed that test, then it was in. Then it was in. So it had to fit those three criteria. And, of course, those later Gospels that you were just talking about, like the Gospel of Thomas and the others, they don't fit in any of these criteria. Correct. So that's why they were left out. Exactly right. They were good theological and... uh, I guess argumentative reasons, philosophical reasons, why they were left out—not just that
1: one side said, "Okay, we're leaving your stuff out and we're including ours." Right. Exactly. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks, and I'm Kirk Hastings, and I still have my voice.
0: <laughs> it must be that dry weather out there.
1: Yeah, well, it, it's dry. It is dry, and I had a cold last week too. So no, that doesn't help. Yeah, exactly. So, so. Not good to be on the radio with a cold. No, or a week later when you think you're all cleared up. Well, let's see if we can get through the next item. Then this was about climate change, or do we have more? No, No, we did that one. Yep, that was it for that one. Okay, Uh, climate change, and I try to keep everybody informed on climate, you know, global warming, climate change, because I think it's a good example of the way that science can be. Co-opted for political reasons. And, politicized. Yep, and even for religious reasons such as naturalism, mm-hmm. atheism. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> this is about that Cancun, Mexico conference. Did you hear about that or did you read yep. about that? Yes, I did. Okay. So you know then that it was one of the coldest record lows in Cancun. <laughs> And that, Ironic, isn't it? That's right.
0: <clears throat> Every time they have these global warming conferences, they've got tons of snow and it's freezing cold. It's almost like God's trying to tell them
1: something. Exactly. <laughs> it does seem to follow them around the world, doesn't it? So this is something that was said by one of them who was there who kind of let the cat out of the bag. This is from economist Otmore Edenhofer, a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He told a Zurich newspaper uh, this, that climate climate policy has almost nothing to do with environmental policy anymore. So maybe you can read that quote there while I try to recover my voice again.
0: It says here that uh, Edenhofer told the paper that climate policy, okay, you just said that, has almost nothing to do with environmental policy anymore. Instead, meetings like the one in Cancun are about global trade and financial policies. They are about a redistribution of the world's resources. Where have I heard that before lately? From the industrialized world to the developing world. And he goes on to say, there is nothing per se wrong about talking about how to make poorer countries more wealthy. And there is certainly nothing wrong with discussions about more equitable trade and financial policies. What's wrong is doing under the guise of climate change with all the fear-mongering associated with the subject. So he says this is not only dishonest, it's counterproductive.
1: Very good. So really, you know, what's behind global... Uh, warming, what's behind climate change? Could it be that it is a political movement excuse to yeah, yeah to redistribute wealth to advance the cause of Marxism, put a stifling uh, control over some of the industrial nations? Mm-hmm. I was very gratified to see though that Fox News covered the true theory, the true explanation for what makes the Earth colder and warmer. So I don't know if you caught that, but we've talked about it on this show. It's experimental work that's been done by the Scandinavian Solar Climate Research Institute, and all of their theories have been worked out between the year 2000 and 2005. And then between 2005 and about 2007, they did all of the experimental work to prove that their theory was correct. Mm-hmm. And we went, we did a show at length where we explained exactly how the Earth's temperature is modulated by the sun, by its, it involves the output of the sun and its magnetic field and the cosmic radiation, which causes cloud formation, which changes the albedo of the Earth. You know, that's the reflective quality of the Earth. Mm-hmm. So the more reflective the Earth is, the lower the temperature gets, and the less reflective it is, the higher the temperature gets. And that is a direct one-on-one match to the all the temperature readings that we've had for the past hundreds of years. Right. Exactly matches, because remember... <clears throat> They astronomers have been monitoring sunspots, which directly relates to the strength of the the sun's output mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. And so they can go back and and match and see whether their temperatures were changing in correlation to this and they were. So it is a total lie to tell you that it is carbon dioxide. Something else
0: that's interesting I've heard uh, about this is it's uh, interesting that. Uh, I've heard that when a volcano erupts, that the matter that it puts out into the air is equal to the entire carbon dioxide output of every car in the United States for one year. Wow. So the point being that there are natural forces in the world that, if you will, produce the air That's in right. the same way that our mechanical devices are, and even more so. But right. the Earth system is such that
1: it—, it Balances Knows it. how to compensate for That's these right. things. That's
0: right. And the argument today is, you know, the environmental environmentalists are saying that it's gotten too far that the earth can't compensate for this anymore. anymore. But we say, well you know, the other side of the argument is these kinds of things, you know, things that pollute the atmosphere have really been going on for thousands of years and the Earth has always been able to compensate before right.
1: and there's no evidence that it's not doing the same now. Exactly. And the other thing that's important to realize is that if carbon dioxide were causing global warming, you would be able to measure it in the atmosphere because this heat exchange takes place in the atmosphere where the carbon dioxide molecules are. Right. And when they go to look and see, is the heat that we're experiencing coming from the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Mm-hmm. The answer is it's not. But mm. they don't want to show you that information. They just right. want to show you that, oh, look, things are getting warmer and the carbon dioxide levels are going up. Right. But the two are not necessarily cause and effect. Right. So... They don't have the evidence to say that one's causing directly causing the other. In fact, there is actually evidence the opposite way. There's evidence to show that as the ocean warms up, it releases carbon dioxide, just like Coca Cola. If it warms up, it releases the trapped carbon dioxide that's in it. Mm -hmm. And the ocean becomes flat. (laughs) That's right. And the ocean does the same thing. So when they're looking at these correlations between carbon dioxide increase and the planet getting warmer, it's not caused by the carbon dioxide. It's caused by the Earth getting warmer, making the carbon dioxide levels go up. When right. the Earth cools down again, the oceans reabsorb the carbon dioxide and things go back to normal again.
0: Right. And so, isn't that an amazing example about how the Earth is designed to compensate for all these things?
1: Oh, absolutely. It,
0: it's amazing. It's such an intricate thing. It's like, wow.
1: Uh, could it be fine tuned?
0: Uh, could it be designed? Maybe. Maybe. Keep listening to this show and find out. (laughs) That's
1: right. Well, I found one other item in the stack of stuff that's from thinkchristianly.org. This is about those who want to say, just preach the simple gospel. Don't get involved in apologetics. Don't bother debating atheists. Don't bother talking about the evidences for Christianity. Just give the gospel. Just share the gospel message. And they either will be, will come to Christ or not. They say, is apologetics, philosophy, and worldview training really necessary? After all, shouldn't we just preach the simple gospel and leave all the intellectual stuff to the academics? And then they have a quote from Nancy Piercy. Nancy Piercy offers good insight here that I agree with. And this is a quote from the book Saving Leonardo, which looks like it's a great book. I saw it in the bookstore and flipped through it, and it looks terrific. And I've read other books by Nancy Piercy, uh, The Soul of Science. She wrote excellent, excellent book about the history of how science started and how Christianity was the base for science beginning.
0: She wrote some books with Chuck Colson, too, didn't she?
1: Yes, she did and her quote is the ultimate goal is to preach the gospel but the gospel is not simple to those whose background prevents them from understanding it today's global secular culture has erected a maze of mental barriers against even considering the biblical message that's from saving leonardo nancy pierso that is why we must help people see that faith is reasonable and that belief in god is not religious wishful thinking And that is why we do the Evidence for Faith show. I was going to say, that's why we're here. That's right. Thank you for listening to us today on Evidence for Faith on WIBG. Please join us again next week, Sundays at 4 p.m. You can listen to us at WIBG.com live. And just remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.